0: For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you all doing? I'm in London. I'm recording this while I'm here for Fashion Week and I'll be sharing some of what I see at the shows in the next newsletter. If you don't get it yet, you can sign up at com. You can also check out my Instagram at Mrs Press. And of course, I'm recording new podcasts for you. Can't wait to share those. But for now, I've got a fab interview from the last time I was here. We're talking trend forecasting with Future Laboratories Christopher Sanderson. Now, in sustainable fashion circles, we're used to thinking of trends as terrible, right? It's the last thing we want, like crazy, ultra-fast industry driven by, I don't know, constantly changing trends. We talk about it in this interview, actually, like it's pink one minute, then it's blue, and then it's pink again. And like, you can't keep up, right? That's what drives overconsumption. And when we're flipping between different or often conflicting as well, right, trends, when it comes to shopping, that's when we can lose control and we just buy and waste way too much. But what about the broader trends shaping our culture, societies and even sustainability itself? It's not all about selling us more crap. Cultural, lifestyle, economic and societal trends help us form a picture of where we're headed. And looking at future trends this way can help us shape our strategies for everything from new business models to reaching our chosen audiences. And just, I think, making sense of what's going on around us. So, how do trend forecasters work? Regular listeners of the show will know that I've got a new book coming out later in the year. It's about the future of fashion. And as part of my research, I was seeking out as many experts as I could. And Chris was one of those. He co-founded The Future Lab in 2000 with Martin Raymond. And some of what he told me is in my book, and you're going to have to wait until October to find out. But while I went to see him, we took some extra time to record a more general podcast, looking at the trend forecasters' art and their tools, Chris's own story, and also some of the trends to watch out for in 2023 and 24. but the good ones, the ones that we, not pink versus blue, the ones we actually want. For our Aussie listeners, Chris is currently on a speaking tour of Australia, sharing his Future Lab Insights. I think it's until March the 12th. But anyway, we've shared a link in the show description so you can find out more. Finally, I want to ask you a favour. Can you help me by sharing the show? Proudly independent since 2017, Wardro Crisis has been sharing these stories without backing from big companies, without loads of cash, marketing and production teams. And I could use some love the simple act of giving us a top rate and review in Apple Podcasts, or just, you know, recommending Water crisis to a friend, just send on the link. That makes a massive difference to me. So thank you. Okay, let's get on with the show and meet Christopher Sanderson, co-founder of The Future Laboratory. Chris Sanderson, welcome to The Water Crisis Podcast. I'm so happy that you've invited me into your space at The Future Laboratory in London.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here. We're
0: going to talk all about how you do what you do. Mm. Looking at the. Are we even right to talk about key trends shaping the future? You tell me.
1: Well, I think so. I mean, to be honest, the, the journey that we've all been on with trends over the last sort of 20 years is an interesting one in itself. And we would, I suppose, now talk less about the idea that we're into or what we do is trend prediction. And we'd talk more about things like strategic foresight. Because on the face of it, if you think about it, when when I set the business up, which was clearly because both myself and my partner Martin Raymond felt there was a gap in the market, it was because we could see that the notion for trend prediction existed within a very limited framework, i.e. fashion, which was, the as you know, because the fashion industry moved so quickly and was reinventing itself every six months with new collections, it needed the support industries around it that helped it to understand mm. shift in color, shift in silhouette, new designs, et cetera. So you've got all these, these businesses that were set up to help fashion companies get better at creating collections that would meet consumer expectation. And so on, on the one side, you had all these highly creative businesses that would do these wonderful presentations where they'd sort of say, I see blue and, <laughs> and give you these wonderful images that were all about blue and we'd all sit there absolutely transfixed and we'd all be scribbling away in our notebooks and then go home and make these wonderful sort of color charts ourselves around blue. And then we'd take that into our businesses and the CFO would turn around and say, yeah, but you know, we've just been selling pink really well. Why on earth should I start? or believe you that we should now go and do blue because I'm going to stick with pink because pink's selling really well. And that's the classic kind of notion of how you get one part of the creative sort of idea around qualitative interpretation of trend prediction. And then on the other hand, you'd have all the support industries that were very statistic and data-driven in terms of traditional data around numbers that would help prove that Pink sold really well last summer, and here's the data to prove it. Here are the numbers. And we couldn't understand why you couldn't put the the quant and the call together, why both couldn't actually provide a far more holistic and whole-brained approach to thinking about trend. And then, of course, critically, as that started to really take off, and what happened was that the internet came along and gave all of us the opportunity to get most of the stuff for free. And so now the value in an organization like ours sits less in the ability to predict a trend and more around helping a business to understand what you do with that information once you've got it.
0: Mm. I first came across you in real life, as opposed to watching what you've done through a screen, just recently at the British Fashion Council's Positive Fashion Initiative event that they had. And for listeners who would like to get an idea of the sorts of things that Chris talks about on stage, It's got nothing to do with pink or blue. You stand there and you talk about the concepts of embedding ethics and morality in the metaverse. You call it the betterverse, or you talk about how different communities are coming together to smash down old hierarchies. What I'm saying is, these are big ideas. Yes, you might be saying, "Okay, more people are going flexitarian," but that's not really what you're doing here. You're trying to kind of map. the way in which different parts of society are headed.
1: You're absolutely right. And a lot of what the team here are doing is continuing to observe and map big global drivers, those those really core movements in global society, in global economies, that are, are really changing the way that consumers behave, whether that be resource scarcity, whether that be mm. evolving technology, just to, to cite two, you know, these are kind of long term things that take 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years to really map out as opposed to the idea of, of something which is trending, which, as we know, yeah. can come and go very, very quickly.
0: Yeah. Who, Who or what helps you do what you do? Well, the who
1: would be absolutely would be the team of of researchers, strategists and analysts that we have at the Future Laboratory. So we're we're a team of 55. This is not a one man band. This is a really, really capable and experienced team of individuals who have come from a variety of different backgrounds and whose skill sets really revolve around the ability to observe, to interrogate and to intuit intuition, observation and interrogation. And it is through the use of those three tools that you can actually start to map out the future. Mm. And so intuition is a highly important part of that process because normally you have a sense of what things are going to be like before they actually happen. And there is nothing spooky about intuition. It's not a, a witchy sort of sixth sense. It is simply the rock bed of your own experience helping you to better understand how you short code something. Again, not a new idea. No, so if you think about what Malcolm Gladwell describes in Blink, where he talks about that ability to walk into a room of of art and to suddenly know that it's fake. And it's what, what is it that that journey where you see a whole bunch of experts being conned into believing that this is authentic and then someone else's ability to just walk in and go, that's not real... And it's that shortcut process, which is what really intuition is is about. And for us, it's the first point, It's it's the spearhead, because if you successfully use your intuition, you support it through the process of observation and interrogation. Of course you ask questions, but the important thing is, what's the question you're gonna ask and who are you gonna ask it to? Which is why we are not market researchers, because a lot of the time we don't believe that the consumer, the general public, is ever going to give us the answers that we need. What do they know about the future? So we'd rather ask an expert. You know, again, to to kind of use an off-use quote, it was Henry Ford who said, if you had given the public what they wanted, it would have been a faster horse. Yeah. They didn't know what the car was.
0: Chris, do you think we've all got intuition and can you hone it?
1: We all do have intuition and absolutely we can all hone it.
0: Did you hone yours in a specific way?
1: Totally, absolutely. You know, a lot of it is about Like any of these things, half the journey with a talent is in recognizing the talent and then giving it space to breathe and to grow and and feeding it. And so recognizing that you have the ability to make intuitive decisions and to trust your intuition is the most important thing. Most of us spend a lot of time not trusting our intuition and then using other parts of our brain to actually rationalize a feeling And it's that process of, let's be guided by the experts, let's be guided not by a sense of the majority, but let's look at things where it's the anomalies in a situation that are of interest to me, because like a seismologist, I'm looking for those small movements of that needle that help me to understand that there is a pattern that's beginning to emerge, that historically I can refer back to and prove out that that is... A likely indication that larger seismic activity is about to occur.
0: A seismologist. Yes, is data driven. How much data do you collect and use, and what you? Well, do?
1: now you see the data is such a great word because whenever we use the word data, we tend to think that it refers to numbers, but it needn't. Really. Data can be visual. I was thinking
0: when I said it as well, it's one of those words I don't understand and don't like very much. Yeah,
1: Data is simply about a body of information. Uh, It's just, we often think that it refers purely to statistical analysis. There are no numbers about the future because it hasn't happened yet.
0: I was thinking maybe in a much more elementary way that you'd be like, well, 15 people in Hoxton were drinking matcha tea. I know that sounds absurd, but you know, you're actually talking about counting.
1: Yeah, no, there is always an element where we might be looking at the numbers and the data around subsets. But we'll often be looking at it within a context of thinking about other examples that show us that this is something worth further scrutiny or attention. Mm-hmm. And it could be about the one off vision that a bartender has had to reinvent their idea of the cocktail. And, you know, I mean, there are countless examples I could give of our process of observing that trend, whether it be through the growth of the coffee movement that just took everyone by storm from the sort of mid-90s onwards, to the growth of the no and low alcohol categories, to the emergence of the CBD market, the move towards vegetarian, organic, and then flexitarian and plant-based diets, which we've tracked extensively over the years. And sometimes it is about the numbers. It's about the fact that you'll get the data that will show that there's been a marked increase in the sales of dot, dot, dot. But it, as I've said, it might also be about the fact that you we suddenly start to hear about a one-off shop that's opened in downtown Tokyo or, you know, in Brixton, in South London, or in an unexpected part of San Francisco. And it might be the fact that you've got three very similar shops opening in three completely disconnected cities globally that starts to indicate that there's a feeling, a sense, and an an interest in doing something slightly divergent that again is just another set of data that helps to confirm that something bigger is on its way
0: chris because you and i both share a magazine background albeit different ones that just made me giggle because we used to say three is a trend
1: (laughs) absolutely And, and you know our team here follow very similar circumstances for for trying to assess and analyze the opportunities for identifying trends and growth areas
0: three sightings of a platform on a different runway yeah As you know, this podcast is all about sustainability. I feel like many of our listeners will bristle at the idea of trends because trends are inherently unsustainable if we're chasing them. In today, out tomorrow, it's one of the reasons why we're so speedy in fashion. What would you say to this sort of charge? Aren't trends obsolete?
1: Trends are not obsolete at all. What all of us are probably concerned about and would really like to see moving towards obsolescence is the really negative use of the word trend through its diminutive term trendy, which really only started in the 1950s onwards, which is where the more traditional understanding of a trend being a movement towards something, being used to define a moment in fashion. And the sense of trendiness and trendy has now been co-opted around the word to define the idea that we all start to pull towards something that is attractive or aspirational, For a brief time. Something that we all want for a very brief period of time. And I would absolutely agree with your listeners that that is actually the last thing that most of us want.
0: Yeah. What about sustainability as a trend? That's another thing that people bristle about. Like, sustainability is not a trend, it's the only way forward, which is something I'm sure I've said. But sometimes in these reports from whoever it is, You'll see sustainability as trending, and that makes people nervous that perhaps it's a here today, gone tomorrow conversation.
1: Well, it may very well be because we may well be here and gone tomorrow. So I think it's really important to give space and thought to the notion that sustainability is a trend because it is growing in popularity. And it continues to attract more people who look at the importance of a more sustainable lifestyle and a more sustainable relationship with the idea of consumption. So it is absolutely a trend. And the notion of our attraction to what sustainability represents is a clear lifestyle choice. So whilst we may feel that there is also a moral imperative... That underpins the notion of sustainability, to which I would absolutely agree. You cannot dismiss the way in which we are all coalescing around an understanding that a more sustainable perspective and a more sustainable lifestyle is currently the way that we should be thinking.
0: Mm, I guess the next thing to be looking at then is how it will evolve and what the next version of that will be. Not that it will be disappearing and we won't care about sustainability when this is over. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, you could argue that sustainability as a trend will stop at the point, for example, when it becomes law. So as and when our behaviour is curbed, not through a sense of personal choice that's Mm. either based on an ethical code or an aspirational engagement, but is based on a point of law then it becomes a different conversation. But we're not at that point yet. We're not at a point where air miles, for example, are no longer a badge of honor amongst a small cohort of travelers and that are rewarded for what some would see as profligate behavior, but air miles are the number of miles that you as an individual are allowed to travel in a given period. And you are not allowed to travel more than your subscribed air miles.
0: As a person who lives in Australia and likes to come to Britain, this does scare me, even though I actually think we should do it. You use that as an example. Have you, have you heard people talk about that? Do you think that's coming?
1: Well, we, I mean, we now have what's known as flight shame. We do. And we've seen airlines that have actually based marketing campaigns around the idea of yeah of flight shame so it didn't
0: work though did it though
1: Um. (laughs) it it
0: got lots of headlines but I don't think people took it seriously yeah yeah. I mean the headlines were airline which is KLM which is the Dutch one you know uses flight shame to sell more tickets right
1: yeah yeah
0: (laughs) are they your clients
1: (laughs) no not at all (laughs) not at all no
0: What sorts of brands do you work with?
1: So we work across the lifestyle industries um, primarily. So whilst we're a B2B business, most of our clients are selling product direct to consumers. And that's in all categories. So in retail, in luxury, in fashion, in beauty, in automotive, in tech, uh, in travel, in hospitality, in food and beverage, in medicine. It's it's really broad.
0: Each year you present... Forecast for the following year, is that right? And then yes. in, in between, you put out various reports and deep dives on certain issues.
1: Absolutely. So, since we started back in 2001, we've held an event either biannually or annually that we call our trend briefing, which is where we look at some of the, the key issues that we think our clients should know about and the people that, that want to engage with us. And sometimes that's sector specific. But more often than not, we try to look at the bigger overarching themes that we feel are relevant. So it could be, for example, about the continued the impact of the, the metaverse being a perfect example. It could be that we're looking at how we believe communities are restructuring their organizational capabilities post-COVID. So sometimes they tend to be themes that can feel quite nebulous, but what we try and do is, is take that very sort of nebulous thinking that's often quite conceptual and start to give it some rigor, some structure, and start to really wayfind for the, the people that attend. So they start to get a really clear idea of what this might mean to their brand, what it might mean to their business, how we believe consumers are gonna to start to behave differently, and therefore what the business or brand might need to do in order to continue to have a successful relationship with that consumer and that individual. We'll demonstrate how this trend is beginning to manifest itself the drivers that are causing that trend to become more and more relevant in a future society, and then examples of how that trend is beginning to reveal itself across different societies or demographics. Things that we know are are on the horizon and then a slightly longer perspective of where we think this will go. Where's this gonna take you and what's the implication for you?
0: So how exactly are you doing it? You've got more than 50 people in your organization. Do mm. you have people around the world that you contract to look at what's going on in the local cafe or
1: absolutely. So so our model is very much that we have this team based in London, but across the globe we have a network of over a thousand experts who we regularly poll or call on or ask, depending on requirement. What to do help they do? They, they write you letters.
0: They say, I was in. The supermarket the other day, and I noticed that everybody is asking for yes, no, no sometimes, plastic packaging.
1: And it could be that we'll put a call out and say, we've been asked, you know, we've got a project on that is about the continued growth of the no or low alcohol market. Have you got examples that you can show us of an increase of interest in th- th- those particular categories?
0: Are. So it's about where they are geographically. And then that
1: will have a geographic stance, for example. Or it could be that we'll a call will go out to a specific industry sector because... That's the area we've been asked to look at. And then it's it's polling those experts, questioning those experts, interrogating those experts to get their sense of how their particular industry sector is, is moving and changing.
0: Are there places in the world that are more forward-thinking or that you would go to first to find out what's going down?
1: London continues to be an absolute centre of deviance where people think counter to popular culture (laughs) do you Um, like
0: deviant in a positive light
1: yeah absolutely it's a great word because again it's provocative so it makes people stop and think because again it goes to the heart I think about of of successful trend forecasting and analysis which is that the idea that you're you're spotting difference which often on first look or encounter is not either interesting acceptable or popular and so the use of the word deviant I think helps you to understand that there is a tension going on here that the majority of the time the first time you present an idea of a trend the majority of people don't get it aren't interested or it repels them not often, maybe in a very re- visceral way but more just like no, nah, that no don't, nah, don't see the value in that
0: um, that was making me think, Chris, it's interesting, isn't it, how we use words? Because the idea of deviance or deviant behaviour is definitely associated with criminality and terrible kids being bad. But actually, that's because our society doesn't praise people who step out from the norm. And we've got this cultural hang up about, oh, don't put your head above the water, don't be different. No,
1: absolutely. And if you look at the the, the general makeup of any population and, and This is seminal to our work, which is based on the thinking of sociologists like Everett M. Rogers, who in the 1960s was writing about what he called the diffusion of innovation and the diffusion of innovation curve, which in essence is the S curve from where we get the expression ahead of the curve, which defines the fact that within almost any given population or group or community of people, you have a tiny number of people who are what he classifies as innovators about Three percent. of The early adopters population. No, no, no. Before your early adopters, okay. no, You've got innovators. So innovators are a really small are the, number. The, the that tiny, are, tiny. Three yeah. percent. Who are the ones who are actually doing it? They are coming up with new ideas. They are disrupting. They are thinking about the opportunity for doing something different and creating change. But most innovators are so obsessed with the idea of innovating that that's all that they do which is why the next group is so important, which is your early adopters. And we all know early adopters. We might even be one, if you're listening to a podcast to some extent, you're probably an early adopter, which is that you want to know things before other people. So you're the kind of person that has downloaded that app and joined that community before your friends. You've actually watched that box set before anyone else. You know the name of that band before anyone else. You've changed your jean style ahead of the majority of your group or adopted a new haircut. Because your ability to transmit newness is how you derive a lot of your social status.
0: I did a podcast with an author called Will Storr who wrote a book about status and a book called Selfie. And we talked about... We had a fight, actually, about... um, Good fight, about what drives status and why we chase status. Yeah. And I come from a, a more... I think Will really thinks that this is innate and that it's catch or kill, be first or die. And I... Think we're less driven by sort of caveman instincts than Will does, but this idea mm. of status is, yeah. especially in sustainability, we don't we like to pretend, we like to sort of humble brag and virtue signal that we're not really into status when we clearly still are because you can't shake it. But yeah. I think there is some sort of um, there's a reticence to admit that we want to be number one or chase down the first thing because it seems yeah. egotistical and that's not how I want life to be.
1: Yeah, I would yeah, I I would absolutely I would absolutely challenge that, you know,
0: yeah
1: you know, the kind of age old joke, you know, how do you know if there's a vegan in the room? Oh don't worry, they'll tell you <laughs> being, you know, the perfect example, which is that actually I'm I'm gonna be at great pains to tell you about my suffering, about my decision to of abstinence, about what I've given up. About what I'm choosing not to do. Oh no, we can't I'm, shake it. I'm absolutely going to wear it on my sleeve. Yeah, you know. And
0: I guess we do that in sustainability as well, don't we?
1: Completely.
0: <laughs> Damn it! Yeah. Um, what sort of status chaser were you as a kid, Chris?
1: Um, well, you so are I know you worked talking, in fashion. Yeah, so you are talking to somebody who still doesn't drive to this day and has never owned a car not out of some kind of higher moral ethic or calling, but because they spent all their driving lesson money on Catherine Hamnett. <laughs>
0: she's um, been on this podcast. She's a legend.
1: So there you go. She's so, a,
0: she's the 3%, right?
1: Yeah, no, completely. Uh, she's a great example of that. What were you yeah. wearing? What, what From Catherine Hamnett, oh my goodness. Well, I do remember buying... One of her Gorby t shirts, I Love Gorby, which I actually wore in Russia. As
0: in Gorbachev?
1: Yes. Oh, um, I just. I yeah. love
0: that you just threw that in. I was in Russia, by the
1: way. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, right at the height of Perestroika and Glasnost, I was in Russia on a, a tour and. Um, a bus tour. Oh, not a bus tour, <laughs> no. A theatrical tour, actually. I was in a, in a play. Were you? That was in Russia. Were you an and actor? I was. I trained as an actor, yeah. And, what um, play was it? It was actually a production of Murder in the Cathedral. Wow. Bizarre. And we took it to the Moscow Art Theatre, which if any of your uh, listeners know who Stanislavski is, it, it was his theatre. as It was where, where his his training started and was exemplified. So it was and a big And you wore a Gorby T-shirt. And, uh, yeah. I, and the, what, the most interesting thing about that was that the Hamnet Gorby T-shirt, which had a big heart and a picture of Gorby on it, had, of course, had his birthmark splotch on it. And in Russia, in the media... It was always oh, airbrushed out. Wow. Yeah. So it was. Whilst there was th- lots of eyebrows at just the t-shirt itself, the problem uh, came deviant from the fact that it actually showed him as he really was.
0: <laughs> I love that I got that story out of you. Didn't know you were an actor. <laughs> Can you just give us one or pick one trend that you're excited about shaping fashion in the future? Is it about, for example, the scientist working on the biotech material? Like, what we've, are you tracking? What are you looking for?
1: I've been really interested, for example, in some of the work we've been doing in our food reports. And Martin and I actually did a book called Create, which is I the future of, of eating. I'm really fascinated at how uh, a new generation of technologists and, and engineers are being able to replicate basic nutrients like carbohydrates and proteins and sugars sometimes with the case of things like proteins, literally out of thin air. And so it's this idea of how, for example, you reconstruct sweetness without the traditional carbohydrates that sit behind sugar and the sugar molecule, as it were, that are all the bad bits that are causing so many problems in diet. Mm. And so how you create something that has the natural sweetness of sugar without it actually being refined sugar, I think is... It's so interesting because whilst we're not there yet, those kind of innovations that have the opportunity to radically transform diet Mm. and our relationship with food, I think become very interesting. I remember probably, it must be about 10 years ago now, when we first started looking at lab-grown meats and how within such a short period of time, that has moved from being something that was seen as being really freaky, quite spooky, And something that a couple of people were playing with in the lab to something where we've now got, obviously, not just in terms of meat, but in terms of other animal byproducts. You've got people like Hermes, who are working with businesses that are providing them with lab-grown leathers that either are protein-based or are mycelium-based, and that those are becoming next-stage reality.
0: Let's talk about your idea of the better I.e., a metaverse done better. What's the context for this? So, as a. Well, I think the
1: context is really around the notion of disenfranchisement, which is that if we don't understand what it means to be a 21st century citizen or netizen, where increasingly, our, not just our visibility, but our presence within a digital world has to have some kind of not legislation, but but needs to have that same kind of value that we have around the notion of what it means to be an enfranchised citizen within our society, we will lose our rights. And so it really starts to look at the, the civic governance of these environments that isn't just about law and about rules, but it is about the very construct of that framework that society who it's there to enable who it's there to protect and what it's there to deliver
0: so i heard you speak about this and that's uh, one of the reasons why i was so keen to get you on the podcast Mm. but this term "metaverse," cute word but do you want to explain it
1: well it really just came out of some work that we did so we originally did a report looking at the metaverse and about the role that within an entertainment framework that the metaverse was continually going to play or going to deliver and obviously there's a there's a brand imperative there, which is that, you know, what space do you occupy as a brand, whether you be a a fashion brand? And we've all clearly seen how, you know, Gucci is a really good example of um, a fashion business that's really on top of understanding its social and its metaverse opportunity, you know, teaming up with Roblox, doing all sorts of fantastic initiatives. At the same time that I think they're trying to look at what it means to understand the requirement to diversify and to appeal to a more intersectional consumer. And of course, the problem with something like the metaverse is that because it's all about money, because it's all about opportunity, because it is all about a land grab around real estate, it's very easy to to either just play to the majority or to play to the lowest common denominator of success, rather than actually think about, how we start to structure an opportunity that is equitable mm. and that actually caters for the widest number of consumers possible and actually highlights the, the diversity of the human condition rather than simply narrowing things down to the average.
0: Overwhelmingly, coders are white young men.
1: Yeah, and that's, therein lies the problem, which is why you see fantastic initiatives like ones designed to actually provide free application software that enables people to actually choose black African, caribbean hairstyles for their avatars that are a more genuine representation of mm. the difference that you find in ethnic hair, mm. so that you don't end up with these gross standardizations or appropriations that have no reality and, and are simply not based in a, a real lived experience.
0: And we need to learn the lessons from gaming, for example, where there's so much misogyny and so much sexism because nerdy, single, white young men have written most of these programs. The bias that that obviously leads to, this is serious stuff. Mm.
1: Uh, and that's why that the conversation around how you structure and build a society Mm. is so important. Mm. And whether it be around the notions of a constitution, but the creation of a society within our digital realm is one of the most pressing kind of concerns that we we should be focused on right now.
0: And it's obviously also about how brands manage data.
1: Yeah, that's part of the conversation.
0: A brands coming to you to say, how can we craft a strategy that ensures that whatever we're delivering product-wise in this space is looking at this stuff is that would they come to you for that or do they come and say we we want to make some cash on this video game what do you reckon the kids are after
1: well clearly it's (laughs) it's a combination of both we we are we're a commercial business so our aim is to help our clients to be more successful and we live in a society where what in essence, what that means is to become more profitable and to become more financially profitable.
0: But does that also mean becoming more within that? Because we're moving towards uh, a place of higher expectation when it comes to brands doing the right thing or well, being purpose-driven. I, well,
1: I was going to say we've already written about uh, one of the trends that we recently kind of wrote and crafted was was about post-purpose, which is about this idea of also what happens when you realize as a business that potentially you you have a lifespan and therefore you're working towards the end of your business life rather than this idea that you're going to be enjoying continuous growth. And so the recognition I think of the life cycle of a business is is increasingly becoming more and more relevant for Mm. more and more businesses, as well as those conversations around purpose and profit. And we've already seen companies who have started to make some very specific decisions around how they will actually stop making profit in some areas because they no longer feel it's justifiable rather than simply looking at a shareholder requirement or satisfying shareholder expectation. And so there is absolutely change within corporate structure around this idea of actually what a successful business looks like and what it feels like. And our remit here at the Future Laboratory has always been to help businesses to make a better future happen. We've started to really turn our attention to this idea of The the focus for consumers moving forward through this decade is is less on this idea of the experience. And it's more on actually looking for the businesses, the brands, the products, the services that can help them on their journey to become healthier, wealthier, and happier. And so it's this notion of personal growth, personal transformation, as well as societal transformation. Are you hopeful? Um, I am always optimistic. I am a, a heartened optimist. I'm a great believer in 11th hour solutions, which is that we tend to, like we all probably did with our homework, we leave it until the last minute and then we di- We deliver. So I, I am just hoping- Not
0: everyone does that, Chris. I'm learning a lot about <laughs>
1: you. <laughs> I am just hoping that we are going to find the solutions that we'll need.
0: This has been really good fun. I'm very grateful for you taking the time Not to share your insights. Can we get your dog in here? <laughs> yeah. Mollie. you for listening to wardrobe crisis you can find the show notes for each episode over on our website www.thewardrobecrisis.com and that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters i hope you've enjoyed the show i'd love you to help us spread the word tell a friend share on social media or leave us a rating and review in apple podcasts it really helps new listeners find us on the app you can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs Press. My friends all feel that I'm carrying us to you. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.